0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. There are many great writers, men and women without whose work our cultural, intellectual, and spiritual inheritance will be notably diminished. Among them, everyone will have his own personal top ten, but I myself have a special devotion to four of them. One of whom may be corporate as well as personal One of them is English Obviously Shakespeare, the great crypto-Catholic writer Living through the only period in English history Disgraced by the presence of a secret police force Of the others, two are Greek Homer and Plato And it's Plato who is my subject today At popular request, as you noted But which Plato? The historical people of Socrates, insofar as we can come to grips with him through the wealth of later and continuing interpretations and misinterpretations for every commentator is also an interpreter or the inspiration for the revived Platonism of Plotinus in the third century of our era that is of the man in whom Augustine claimed that Plato had come back to life the man whose basic principles helped deliver Augustine from materialism? Or are we to look for the inspirer of Petrarch and of Marsilio Ficino's Florentine Academy? Or at the anti-Calvinism of the 17th century Cambridge Platonists? Or at the man whom Whitehead acclaimed a philosopher of such power that all subsequent Western philosophy is but a footnote to his work? And these are only some of the varying Plato's and Platonism's one could list in the plus column. And of course, there could also be a minus column. The Platonism of the fantasiect and decadence like Swinburne. And your splendidly witty and morally dodgy Oscar Wilde. A Platonism, close scare quotes, of which I have learned from the misfortune of another lecturer to speak rather carefully. For once in Toronto, an overweight and over-opinionated British professor One of the so-called God professors from the more officially authoritarian days of the academic world Started his oration with the immortal words I am not a practicing Platonist Which met with the immediate response from the back of the room You'd be in jail if you were (laughs) But I could stop there what I've said already indicates something of the perennial importance of Plato. Oh, and I forgot, he fascinated Aristotle too, the thinker whom he apparently dubbed the mind of the school, and who listened to him for some 30 years or more. Though Plato's academy wasn't really a school in the ancient or modern sense of the word, but a place where people could sit together, where it didn't matter whether you accepted Plato's views or not. All of its leading members, Aristotle, Spucippus, Plato's nephew and successor, the mathematician and moral philosopher Eudoxus, and many others, publicly disagreed with Plato on very substantive issues, but none of them left the Academy during the Master's lifetime. The perennial importance of Plato had already been established when he died in 347 BC. What then was the role of Plato in the Academy? Why did he found the place? What did he want people to do there? Answers to these questions would bring us closer to the wide-ranging nature of Plato's philosophical activity. And when we grasp something of that, we can begin to understand why there are so many Platonisms, and direct our attention to all the more basic question of how Plato himself supposed one could become a philosopher and why it is, as Socrates had already proclaimed at his trial, subhuman not-to-do philosophy. Perhaps we should start with the foundation of the academy, then turn to Plato's philosophical behavior as its founder. In commenting on these questions, I shall not assume that Plato's apparently seventh letter is genuine, but only that the story tells of the more public aspects of Plato's career, is largely, but not wholly, accurate. Say there was an aristocrat from a family deeply involved with both ends of the philosophical spectrum. The Democrats, though the word indicates something of people's democracies as well as our own Western liberal version, and the oligarchs, neoconservatives eager to replace the democracy by what they consider a more rational form of government and the ex-Democrat Alcibiades had adopted their proper tone when describing democracy, as then understood, as acknowledged folly. At the end of the Peloponnesian War, members of the oligarchic group, led by Plato's uncle, Critias, invited Plato himself to join a government established in Athens with foreign support. Plato decided to wait and see how they behaved, doubtless from personal experience in fearing the worst and were appalled as they launched a campaign of confiscations and killings which had they not been overthrown would have included the killing of Socrates. For so Socrates had disobeyed an order to take part in the arrest of a fellow citizen selected for elimination for the sake of his money. Socrates' behavior, as Tato records it, is a paradigm case of what is now called agent relative morality. He knew that his refusing to take part in the arrest would not save the victim. His attitude was that injustice will be committed. I can't prevent it. But it won't be committed through me. You'll recognize the echo of the in there, incidentally. So he went back home expecting the knock at the door at 3 o'clock in the morning. Before that could happen, however, democracy was restored And again, Plato was invited to take a leading political role. But then followed the judicial murder of Socrates for atheism and corrupting the youth, which confirmed Plato's belief that politics as then practiced, and not only in Athens, could not be redeemed, and that one must start again by educating a new breed of public figures who were to become the so-called guardians of the republic, whose policies were to aim at the good of the subjects not the advantage, financial or sexual, of the rulers. For it's worth noting that in the ancient world, so far as the evidence reveals it, power-hungry politicians really loved power, as we would say, for its own sake, that is, for the sheer joy of being backstage controllers of events, like Martin Bormann in the Nazi regime. Rather, they lusted for money, land, and uncontrolled access to the bodies of boys and women, spiced often with the satisfaction of imposing humiliation on the families and friends of those abused. To put a break on all that, Plato founded his academy, where intelligent young men and a few women who dared to come were to learn better. But how do we know in a world in which increasingly the sophisticates or pseudo-sophisticates were and are coming to believe some form of Pythagoras' claim that man is the measure of all things, of what is good or better, anyway. That question led Plato to the construct the first metaphysical defense of morals, an attempt to show that ethics is at best a con- conventional code, at worst a confidence trick if it lacks foundations. In our days, where many see rules, heart or royalty, not to speak of Derrida or Nietzsche, as near-divine figures, we can hardly fail to see the importance of the philosophical project that Plato had begun to undertake. So the founding of the Academy, however it was to develop, was in the first instance a practical project. And we can now turn to Plato's personal role in that project. This theme can best be approached in light of the strange situation which we can recognize at the end of Plato's life, when he wrote the Timaeus, a work of a type which in his earlier days he claimed he was incapable even of attempting, namely, to offer an account of the principles by which our material universe has been constructed by God. As soon as the Timaeus was complete, arguments broke out in the Academy as to whether Plato was describing the formation of the universe with time, the understanding of Aristotle, or whether the apparently temporal references in the text indicate a strictly metaphysical and atemporal dependence of the universe on God and God's goodness, the view of Xenocrates in the Academy. Now, the Timaeus was written several years before Plato's death when both Aristotle and Oxnese were in daily contact with its master and author. We can only assume that when they asked him what he intended in the book, he gave some sort of enigmatic answer, perhaps something like, yes, that's the problem. I myself have received a similarly disconcerted response from a prominent Catholic aficionado of Wittgenstein. <laughs> the point is, of course, that Plato wanted his friends to work out the answer for themselves. He had set the problem up and perhaps pointed toward the right answer, but he wasn't going to spoon-feed the questioners. More generally, he did not answer, so far as we know, another famous question. How do we save the appearances? That is, the supposedly necessary regularity of the apparently erratic motions of the heavenly bodies. And asked his scientific and mathematical friends what they might propose. Which brings us by a circuitous and late root on a late dialogue to the original nature and purpose of the dialogue form, and to the question why are the vast majority of Plato's philosophical works dialogues? Neither treatises nor oracular poems like that of Parmenides. That question is best approached by scrutinizing a few features of both the form and the procedures of, the, of a few dialogues. Noting first, however, that most Platonists, in the more distant past, seem to have taken little notice of the form in which Plato wrote, but in no small measure generating the varying and often conflicting forms of philosophy more or less acceptable to Plato himself, which appear in the secondary literature as Platonisms. Here there's an informative example from an early dialogue, the Lackeys. At one point, in the search for an account of courage, Nacias says that he has heard that it has to do with knowledge of good and evil, a seemingly Socratic answer, and we might expect it to be found acceptable. Yet when the Platonic Socrates examines it and finds Nacias unable to defend what he has heard, his explanation of courage is discarded, revealing that it's not enough to know or to have heard the right answer one must also be able to justify it. Consider a modern parallel. In a philosophy class, it's not enough to know that there are human rights, merely telling the instructor, for example, that the UN has said they exist. One must be able to defend them, especially in a godless universe, against Jeremy Bentham's reasonable complaint that as in such a world they are mere nonsense upon stilts." Quote. Here's another better, known example of Plato's procedures. This time from the Republic. Sosymenus, in that book, who asserts that what the weak and the stupid call justice is really the advantage of the stronger. He comes to recognise, however, that he has lost the argument with Socrates. Plato paints him as uncomfortable with this, and confirms, indeed, that he has some excuse for being so when he presents his own brothers, Glaucon and Adamantus, restating, as they put it, Thrasymachus' argument in what they take to be a more accurate, more pragmatic, and more emotionally challenging form. So Plato is telling us that Thrasymachus has been defeated, at least in part, because he can't understand how he has been drawn unnecessarily into error. to characterised and victimised by his own ideas is the kind of person who can't understand arguments, whether good or bad. He suffers from something like an invincible ignorance. Plato thus shows that unless you're a certain kind of person, you may be unable to grasp the truth when it's set before your own eyes. Aristotle indeed offers a rather similar opinion in his iconography in ethics. Unless you've been brought up in the right way, you may be unable, as an adult, to see the truth. A blind man can't see a distorted, or in Anscombe's language, a corrupt mind can't understand. Such distortion frequently deriving from an inadequate pre-philosophical background. So we can recognize that the dialogue form enables Plato both to point toward the correct solution of a philosophical problem and, to emphasize success in philosophy, as distinct from showy fame as an airport professor, or its ancient equivalent, I'll come back to that, can't be separated from one's prior moral and hence intellectual condition. That dual platonic intent, as I've observed, has not been understood by most Platonists in the course of the last couple of millennia, but it's a very important part of his legacy, which we are now learning to retrieve. And there's a second aspect of Plato's project which we can also retrieve. Standing at the beginning, almost, of Western philosophical inquiry, Plato had to learn as he went along. Over time, he came to recognize that to defend morality against the cynics and nihilists, he needed to propose a metaphysics of morals. He learned, that is, that it was necessary to do that. More generally, Plato knew that all serious thinking must be subject to revision. The truth, so far as we have discovered it, what constantly survives the challenge, or the elenkos in Greek, preferably, perhaps, the hostile challenge. When he had put the finishing touches to his masterwork, The Republic, he might have supposed that his philosophical journey was substantially over. But he soon realized that his proposals were neither complete nor clear enough expressed for serious critics to find them compelling. In The Republic, Plato had already radically revised his philosophical psychology, that is, since he wrote The Phaedo and The Symposium, abandoning, as more sympathetic, the claim that moral evils derive from a battle between the soul and the urgent desires of the body. In favor of a recognition that the soul, too, in all of us, unless philosophically corrected, is morally weak and easily corrupted. Thus, we may have a weakness for booze and develop the habit of drinking to excess. And we can either follow the erotic passion of our better selves in love of the good and of acts in accordance with it, or, at worst, sink into a human morass where we assume or learn that the mind is, and only to be, a slave of the passions. After completing the Republic, and with the new so-called tripartite psychology in place, Plato realized the need for still further philosophical reconsideration. How many intelligible forms are there? How can we adequately explain the ontological relationship between forms and particulars? In what sense are forms self-predicating? In which cases of one over many should we recognize the presence of a form at all? In all that, we see a recognition of the need for self-criticism comparable to, and in many ways more radical than, that proposed by Kant in his post-Humean period and by Wittgenstein when he concluded that the tractatus was fundamentally flawed. So we can learn from Plato not only to construct arguments tailored to the capacity of our hearers, such as to show them the inadequacy of their characters as well as the low quality of their arguments, but to have the humility to vow will have been seriously in error, either in our philosophical claims, or in our presentation of them, or in both of the above. Humility is a virtue rare among philosophers, but whether or not from mere fear of loss of reputation, as of loss of a bella figura, as the Italians would put it, they're often tempted, as Augustine always pointed out readily enough, to try indefensible moves or such to change the subject, so as to avoid admitting that in their thinking they have in fact hit a brick wall. If there are perhaps no limits to philosophy, Plato helps show the necessity of recognizing the limitations of what we ourselves have, as yet, achieved philosophically. Especially in his earlier writings, where he is much concerned to present Socrates and Gilocritus in a context where both their philosophical and moral virtues and vices can be readily displayed. Plato, a genius in the richness of his language and syntax, the man who, according to the Greeks themselves, quote, knew Homer best, goes to great lengths to offer literary masterpieces as well as material to make the reader or listener think. For remember the stupendous social implications of the task Plato is attempting. He has decided that Greek education based on a reading of Homer and the ancient poets, is now incapable of supporting a civilized Greek culture. With the coming of the sophists and their relentless questioning, it's impossible to go back to the primitive days, whether a city of pigs, or the good old times of those who fought at Marathon, where perhaps in blissful ignorance of basic doubt, we could at least hope they were able to obey our native sense of the difference between right and wrong. Now, in Plato's view, if we are to counter the threat of intellectual and therefore moral collapse, the entire system of education must be reformed and re-established on properly constructed intellectual foundations. Otherwise, we shall not be able to resist the challenges depicted, whether critically or not, by tragic and comic poets and historians in ancient times, as well as by philosophers. Of people who would say stuff like, if Zeus is a serial adulterer, why shouldn't I, a mere mortal, follow his example? Or what's precisely wrong with beating my father or mother? Or what you call self-control is mere lack of virility. Or in Euripides' summation of these questions, what's wrong unless the audience think it is? To resist all that, a new philosophical education must re-establish, even replace the old or old ways. But to do that, it must be presented in a beautiful literary form, able to enchant, as do the poems of Homer, a splendid and perennial protest against the banal jargon and cliche-littered prose in which most, for example, Anglo-American contemporary philosophy is thrown together. For as Evelyn War once observed, in English, it's now impossible to avoid cliches, but at least there's no reason to build up to one. Plato's Lady Philosopher in the Republic, like Penelope in the Odyssey, deserves worthy suitors. If she succumbs to banal writers of a bizarre, banal language, she can never be the muse of goodness and inspiration, and at worst becomes the procuress of change to the trivial or worse. So to pull things together thus far, we need fine ideas presented in fine language and tailored to the capacity of the would-be thinker, which insofar as we decline to be subhuman, means all of us. But how do we comport ourselves when confronted with clever, populist and intimidating philosophical bullies, always ready to pull rank and fame, if not notoriety? Plato shows us how to do that, return once more to Socrates and Thrasymachus, and had I time, I could add Callicles and the Gorgias to the list. From the start of the debate in the Republic, Thrasymachus reveals himself as fiercely contemptuous of what he sees as mere bourgeois goodness. Indeed Plato too in his way, without the violent bluster so similarly criti- is similarly critical of such apparent virtue. In the Phaedo, Socrates observes only half tongue-in-cheek that conventionally decent people are like social insects, bees or ants, they'll be reborn as such in their next reincarnation. Why so? Because Plato knows that under those pressures of what all Greek philosophers recognize as the enemies of the just and honest life, namely pleasure and pain, they will abandon their principles to save their skins or taste the dolce vita. But Socrates, master of pleasure in the symposium and of pain in the Phaedo, also, knows in the Republic how to handle fashionable intellectual thugs. Oh, Thrasymachus, you think I'm a deluded idiot when I talk about justice? Perhaps you're right. Perhaps I am. But please indulge me to the point of giving me a good article and a good argument from which I can learn better. A response that is in the Meno brings down his head. A warning from Menippus, the politician, in fact, most responsible for his eventual death as the readers will have well known, quote, you'd better watch your back in this city. I've commented briefly on why Plato determined to write neither poems nor treatises, but literary dialogues. But I too am a mere commentator. And as I implied, all commentators perforce are interpreters. And my attitude to the questions I've raised, as I've indicated, differ substantially from many ancient, medieval, and even more modern Platonists. Why is that so? Can I explain why, until comparatively recently, many Platonists have really neglected the dialogue form which enriches both Plato's work and our ability to appreciate it? I think I can offer a good explanation. And that very explanation points to further aspects of the perennial importance of Plato. For so far, I've talked about the form of Plato's proceedings, about how he tried to make his readers think philosophically not merely recount data about the views of some philosopher or other, even about Plato himself. For as Gilbert Ryle embarrassingly once pointed out, in some countries, actually he specified France, everyone can talk about philosophy, but there aren't any philosophers. The basis of my explanation is that most of Plato's readers, from Aristotle, who was taught as a deviant Platonist through most, if not the whole of his life, down through those who called themselves Platonists, not Middle-Platonists or Near-Platonists in antiquity. To most other Platonists or Platonizers in the story of the history of Western philosophy, all these were so impressed by the content of Plato's thought, the system they thought they had found in Plato's writings, that they concentrated entirely on attacking, amending, updating, or defending his reasons for concerning themselves little either with Plato's ongoing discoveries or his reasons for embarking on the whole project in the first place. So leaving aside what I see as the incomplete understanding of the demands of a completely full-blooded Platonism, I want now to consider at least a few of the major principles underlying and forming that so valued content. Having then glanced at what Plato wanted to reject and why he wanted to reject it, and the means he chooses by which to reject it are as the key features of what he wanted to promote and defend against all comers. That is, as I should observe, all comers in our time as well as in his own. Plato was the first Western philosopher to argue unambiguously the existence of an immaterial world, a world that is of what he called forms or ideas, and of the minds, human and divine, capable of apprehending them. As one would expect, the claim did not come out of the blue. Parmenides had done some of the preliminary work, philosophical spade work, but arguing for a changeless being, which, however, seems to possess both immaterial and material qualities, to be discussed in terms of a subject with material and immaterial predicates. But because of that ambiguity, we cannot assert that he had clearly identified non-physical objects or whether he rather claimed that the universe is a single substance which would allow for what we would think of as both material and immaterial qualities. What adds plausibility to that is that when we talk about ancient materialism, we should not think of the post-Cartesian variety. Often the term vitalism would suit ancient theories better than materialism. Be that as it may, there's no doubt that against Parmenides, Plato proposed the existence of two types of beings. I hesitate to refer to two worlds because that sort of talk is often seriously misinterpreted. Immaterial beings, that is, recognised by the mind, and material objects recognised by the senses. This is not strictly a two world theory because ontologically the sensibles depend on the intelligibles, which left Plato with a problem he tried in various ways to tackle, namely, in what way that dependence can be explained. Immateriality is a major discovery, though with hindsight it might mistakenly seem the mere recognition of the obvious. So we need to think, ask how Plato <coughs> did indeed come to discovery, <coughs> as well as why he thought it so important that if he was wrong about it, the error would not only be an academic or philosophical failure, that would entail disastrous moral, social, and political consequences in society more widely. For as you'll realize from what I've already said, Plato's discovery of the immaterial world came about as a result of efforts to save the possibility of morality. As we have seen, Plato thought that the coming of sophistic sophisticated questioning of traditional social values, and any traditional account of social values, justice, courage, self-control, etc., would become inadequate. We would have lost our moral virginity. And like physical virginity, it's hard to get it back. Moral words would lose any fixed sense and could be reinterpreted to suit the partisan, even criminal, interests of political or military groups. So, platonic form was originally forms of moral and relatedly mathematical objects. Thus, typically, the argument would run if ABC are F, there is a form of Fness. So that if ABC are just acts, there is a form of justice by which the justice of the particular just act can be identified and measured. Justice itself can only be recognised by the mind. And strictly speaking, only justice is somehow just, while just acts or just agents partake in various degrees in the form of justice. Were there no form of justice, we should not be able to defend any sort of act as just. Any behavior could be labeled just, as Drosemachus proclaims and as Plato recognizes as well. While the implications of such claims are, were already being cynically advanced by politicians, Plato's Uncle Critias have been good at that, to justify brutal or lustful behavior. And this is now abstract speculation, of course. Remember that in ancient Greece, if your citizens lost a war, the men might be killed, the women gang raped, and then enslaved. In Plato's view, unless moral terms can be fixed by reference to his forms, there could only be merely prudential arguments against that sort of behavior. Justice is just, which seems odd. But the oddness becomes more intelligible if we consider not justice, but the quality which Plato probably first proclaimed to refer to as a form, namely beauty, calon, to use a very inadequate translation for the word which indicates the highest kind of moral, mathematical, and aesthetic excellence. In Greek, you can talk, as in English, of being good at or good for, as well as being good. Thus, you could be good at assassinating people. But there's no similar possibility with the word color or beautiful. This indicates an absolute quality, something beautiful in itself. In the fairly early symposium, beauty is the only form discussed, and it's the first introduced in the Republic. And as I said, it was probably the first moral aesthetic form to which Plato attended closely. And that connects but would identify as Plato's first philosophical discovery with his second. The first, you remember, is the discovery of the immaterial or incorporeal. The second relates to the human power which Plato believes can bridge the gap between material and immaterial concerns. That power to philosophize, which is best understood with reference to the form of beauty. This needs spelling out in more detail, with particular reference to the Symposium. Because although the Symposium, as the ancients understood more often than many more than commentators, was not Plato's last and most accurate word of love, it's the single dialogue wholly devoted to that theme. And I would assert without reservation that if a reader fails to understand a good deal of the Symposium, he can only look at Plato's work as an outsider. He can't understand what it is to be a Platonist. Plato and Socrates, the latter, of course, the hero of the former in the Symposium, were both religious people. Though Socrates' religion, not limited to what we would call civic religion, was one of the excuses for killing him as an atheist. While Plato, always the enemy of relativism, of the thesis that man is the measure of all things, emphasizes regularly, and most specifically in his final work, the laws, that, quote, God is the measure of all things. That is in the Timaeus, he's the former of all things in the cosmos. Quote, because he wants to and because he is good. Thus, understanding the forms, the immaterial world, is also bringing the human soul into closer contact with a clean-up <clears throat> concept of God, the lover of goodness and beauty, and whose love of, of such must result in the generation as far as possible, everything properly labelled good and beautiful. From reflection on the single form of the symposium, we learn that Socrates, the passionate lover of truth, goodness and beauty, becomes characterized by what he loves and longs for, and when so characterized, must be philosophically creative. When according to Socrates' instructor, the priestess Diotima, I can't afford to ask why she's female, though it matters, the philosopher is impelled by errors towards beauty itself and eventually catches a glimpse of it, he or see then becomes a generator or begetter in the beautiful, a tokos in kalo in Greek. What does Plato mean by that? Quite simply that beauty is inspirational. That's why the form beauty must itself be beautiful, so beautiful as to be able to do what nothing else can, inspire a man or woman with such strength of purpose as to seek to know and live with the beauty of truth and spread the world about it to others. So the discovery of the relationship between love, beauty, creativity and inspiration is Plato's second gift to those who read and think about his work. from that day to this, all genuine Platonists, from Plotinus to my humble self, want to count ourselves as lovers of truth and hence desirous of showing the beauty of truth to other people. To understand that all this makes sense, consider the following test. Suppose you see a beautiful picture. Unless you're a miserly art collector who wants to turn public goods into private possessions, or who thinks of the picture only in terms of cash on the open market, you'll say to yourself, that's beautiful. I want my family and friends to see it too. And I know that far from their pleasure and inspiration in seeing it diminishing my own, rather it will increase it. He sent text saying things very like that can be found in the greatest Christian Plato's, of course, Augustine, especially, but certainly not only, in his work on free choice. And here's the second case. If I say that I love someone and she and, he or she then asks me to help and I say no, then I'm convicted of not loving at all. Loving entails acting in accordance with or with reference to what you love. Ends in the Republic, when Glaucon asks Socrates, why he makes the guardians come back into the cave, that is, take up active political life, to re-enter the foil of social and practical life, what Augustine called, this darkness of social life, first quotes. Socrates dismisses the objection out of hand with a cursory reply, they're just men, therefore they will do what they ought. To be a guardian, a philosopher entails, not only to know the good, but to love it. Knowing without loving is not real knowing. Rather, at best, is knowing about. Thus, I might know something about the form of the good by reading a Platonic dialogue. But I know goodness when I've seen it and want to act in accordance with it. That seeing cannot really be explained. And, of course, knowledge for Plato, rightly in my opinion, is not entirely propositional. Whether it's of a form or particular, it must be first-hand. Plato declines to give an account of the good in the Republic, for as Plotinus put it, quote, if, and only if, you've seen it, you know what I mean. Platonic eros is not a disease, as the Greeks often thought of it, but a madness. Remember the phrase, the lunatic, the lover of the poet. That derives ultimately from Plato's Phaedrus, and identifies love as a kind of madness which can be well or ill-directed, being in itself neither good or evil. We can love the good, or lust for money or control of other people viewed as commodities. For details, see the Ninth Book of the Republic. We will also recognize the source of my description of platonic knowledge and reasoning as radically different from the desiccated Cartesian alternative, though constantly many philosophy professors are still happy to confuse the two. Platonic forms are not concepts. For Plato, they exist independently of the human mind. They need to be discovered, not invented as mere social glue, though they can perform the function of social glue if their political and social implications are taken seriously. To see that, let's go back again to the distinction between two types of politician, to which I alluded when talking about Socrates and Thrasymachus. For Thrasymachus, astocalicles and Uncle and Gaw- oh, Uncle like Critias and other real-world equivalents. The rule is to exploit, to seize and to hoard. For the Botonic politician aim is to create a society which everyone will want to live well, based his life on moral truth, or as Plato and Socrates would say, quote, to live in such a way as to make one's soul as good as possible, quote. Whereas the Simochean regime is based on selfishness, the Platonic turn is based on creativity. I'm to think that in a world where traditional ignorance, which at least combined its primitive brutality with a sense, if pre-philosophical, that there is a real distinction between right and wrong, has long passed away, something like his metaphysical picture of the universe, and the love of the truth that this picture can inspire, offers the only alternative to a society which must necessarily evolve into regimented savagery and destructive barbarism. Instead of statecraft, Exploitation, instead of beauty, clever trickery with images, instead of truth, propaganda. And having said that, let me consider two very different groups of people who've seen in this vision, on the one side a way of expressing what's revealed as true, on the other what they recognise as the only honest alternative to their deceptive efforts to invent right and wrong. For although when Ryle said that it's odd to say that I Knew the difference between right and wrong, but I forgot what it was. It's becoming easier by the, end of the day to do just that. Indeed, Harry Frankfurt has analysed this kind of non philosophical speech in which the categories of true and false have largely disappeared, but the deceptive emotional power remains and continues everlastingly. This activity is called bullshit. <laughs> Here here stop here I would draw to attention to yet another passage of Plato, this time from the Gorgias, where in the courses of rather brutal satire, Socrates makes an important point in his dispute with a well-known public intellectual. Your art, Socrates suggests, is to teach people how to speak well, especially in public life. That's right, replies Gorgias. But says Socrates, what do you do if one of your pupils misuses what he's done from you, turning his rhetorical skills to some wicked purpose? You mean, replies Gorgias, if he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong? Yes, indeed, says Socrates. Oh, well, says Gorgias, if they don't know the difference between right and wrong, I can teach them that too. So now for we have two groups, differing um, in the active to Platonic seriously, Platonic Platonism seriously. The first, the first, are Christians of the early church. After the sack of Jerusalem in the year 70, when as a modern scholar has put it, the remaining Christians were inclined to worry that there were too few Jews, too too many Gentiles, and the end of the world hadn't yet arrived. The small Christian community came to realize it would have to address pagan culture, and that meant developing a Christian philosophy, a Christian metaphysics which was served, they hoped, as the a vehicle by which they could count the attacks of pagans, who alleged, sometimes with good reason, that the Christians are a bunch of ignorant philistines. So they had to inspect ancient philosophical systems and gradually construct an account of themselves in which they could present a philosophical case which might win over people of the intellectual calibre of Origen or Augustine. I won't bore you with the details. But it was in various forms of Platonism, which despite their obvious weaknesses from the Christian point of view, not least because Platonists normally held a the soul is immortal by nature rather than by grace, that they found what might, with gradual correction, suit their book, for the following reasons. That Platonism posited an immaterial world and an immaterial God and an immaterial soul. That unlike the atheist Aristotle, it held strongly to the notion that God is providential. That is, he is concerned with punishing the vices and promoting the rewarding the virtues of mankind. Remember that in antiquity, the word atheist normally denotes not someone who denies the existence of gods altogether. Such people might be counted, in fact, on the fingers of a mutilated hand, but someone who denies the existence of providence. And apart from Platonism, only Stoicism was a possibility on that score. And some Christians, like Italian, like the look of it. Not only because it's morally ultra-rigorous, but because of the belief that the soul is sort of material, it might be easier to defend a crucial tenet of the ancient church, namely the resurrection of the body. An ancient intellectual, Italian, could observe, might readily agree that the soul is immortal, but the body is a very different matter. Nevertheless, the materialism or is it the vitalism and pantheism of the Stoics, eventually render them unacceptable. And the Platonic intelligible world, combined with the belief in errors, which could so easily be blended into Alia with the mystical reading of the Song of Songs, the last book according to the Hebrew Bible, helped to make the choice irresistible. Ancient Christians were not the only Christians to discover in Platonism a respite from philosophical and theological woes. From Marsilio Ficino's resurrection of what he hoped was the academy in 15th century Florence, Ficino sought to recover something of the joy and inspiration of philosophy, which, when so many other great thinkers of his age, not least Thomas More, held to have disappeared among the arid technicalities of Latter-day scholasticism. Via a lover of the Platonic tradition in the Cambridge Platonists, desperate to find an alternative to the crude voluntarism which passed as intelligent theology in their day, down to those of us now who find the augustine's love of god still the most inspiring practical and christian alternative to the triviality and banality of so much contemporary thinking and remember that augustine's last words were a quotation from the inniads of his third century pagan master Plotinus, who helped deliver him from materialism and whom he described over exuberantly but understandably as Plato come back to life I mentioned a very different and second group of those who bear witness to Plato's perennial importance. Not people who think he's right, but those who fear he might be, and recognize him as the master in moral philosophy of the metaphysics of morals, who has formulated something like the most powerful challenge to their own protagorean attempts to invent good and bad. J.L. Mackey, to take a widely read example in Inventing Right and Wrong, is compelled to admit that if there are moral realities, they must look something like platonic forms. He said that because he knew that Plato offers a powerful philosophical defense of the idea that goodness, beauty, and truth are not invented, but discovered. Mackey, as many other contemporary teachers of moral philosophy, is, as I've indicated, a protagorean, someone who believes that man is the measure of all things and Pythagorean versions of modern philosophy now run so deep that it's official orthodoxy even to include Kant as a constructivist. At this point, however, I have to admit that I'm very cynical about the history of philosophy in general, and moral philosophy and, philosophical psychology in particular. And remember that Augustine thought, wisely, that most mistakes in metaphysics begin below the belt. Since most of us want to be not only Pratagoreans but also humans, in supposing, at least outside of the philosophy class, that reason, reason is indeed the slave of the passions, its characteristic job being to rationalise, not to investigate. And similarly, I see that's true from the comment of Geoffrey Warnock many years ago now, that if a philosopher wants to destroy the empire of his predecessors, the best thing he can do is to get people to think about something else. There are so many examples in the history of philosophy, interesting ideas just falling out of fashion, less because they've been refuted than because we, whoever we are, just know that they are bizarre. Thus, and curiously, we're back to Socrates and Thrasymachus once again. And though I say this without committing myself to the truth of all the interesting ideas I have had in mind at this point, let me ask why, for example, With the coming of Russell, Hegel disappeared from the curriculum of most British philosophy departments. Or how Hobbes got away with some of his marvellously written but outrageously unsupported claims in the philosophy of mind. Claims which, when you think about them, should impel you to say, There's a thousand years of philosophy, mind just gone down the tube. And is it really quite as simple as that? What is of interest here, of course, is that Hobbes thought Hobbes said what he said that the, quote, wicked doctrines of Mr Hobbes, close quotes, were taken so seriously even by those who thought them wicked. But he got away with it in no small measure because he said what many, quote, intellectuals, close quotes, more or less wanted to hear. But not forever, and the spirit of Plato and Platonism keeps coming back to haunt the minds of those like Mackey who think they've cured him off, at least by some question-begging error theory. The error being our pre-philosophical belief in a given distinction between right and wrong. This will always return, so long as people can learn to think, even a little bit, for themselves. Finally, on this same question, let me give you an example from my own limited intellectual history. When I was an undergraduate, I studied a lot of ancient philosophy. Obviously, Plato could not have been ignored, though he could be deformed, and often was but I now think that Plotinus is the third great figure in Greek thought. Yet of him I heard not a single word, so that when almost by chance I began to read him, knowing only that he was a sort of Platonist my former instructors would have thought of but nothing more than a nasty little mystic, I said to myself, this guy's really good, though probably I said bloke rather than guy. Why didn't someone tell me about him when I was studying ancient philosophy? I formed then some very uncharitable opinions about those around whom I considered and considered to be ideologically, not philosophically, driven in a matter. But by then I'd read Clotinus, and he's been a major influence on me ever since, and a platonic influence ever since. So I draw near the end, and there's a sense in which the end and the beginning ought to be alike. I began with talking about how, how and why Plato taught philosophy. Then I moved to a brief sketch of some of the important things he taught, allowing, however, that few of his followers, Satan and were, succeeded in coming to grips with the whole man. And sometimes I regret to have to say, even failing to come to grips with how he thought one can become a philosopher. Often because they were so fascinated by his metaphysics, that if they got, or never worked out, why he ever became a metaphysician in the first place? For I've tried to argue that for all their differences, Plato, like Socrates, was a practical man. He didn't think of philosophy as an ivory tower activity, but as a way of making us more human, more godlike, and of inestimable benefit to our fellows in and out of the so-called cave of the Republic. In this respect, however, Plato was able to enjoy the support of his own society. Humanists, to use an anachronistic word, and artists, were in Greece considered not creative god substitutes, licensed to invent their own or lifestyle, but as craftsmen, almost as servants of society. We can see this best when we think about the poets, those educators Plato was trying to replace, but whose goals as educators were in a strong sense his goals too. In The Frogs, the Comedy of Aristophanes, the god of drama, realizing that there are no good tragedians left in Athens, goes down to the underworld to bring back Euripides. But when he gets down there, he finds that Euripides being challenged by Aeschylus, and a contest is held to decide which of the two, the supposedly conservative or the new realist, should be brought back to earth. But even before the competition begins, the rules of the art of poetry are agreed. The work of a poet all agree, that is, the author of the play, his characters, Aeschylus and Euripides, the aim of a poet is to make men better in the cities. Exactly what Plato wants to do through philosophy. So in that respect, he has an advantage. Now, in our more contemporary society, Platonists don't live in a world like that. They live in a world in which pop stars or soccer players and other celebs regard themselves and are regarded as moral oracles claiming perhaps that this might be because they're more famous than Jesus. Plato took advantage of the social climate in this respect better than that which we now enjoy. Note that the historical Aeschylus had inscribed on his gravestone that he had fought twice for his city. No mention of his fame as a writer of plays. But although Plato's world is radically different from ours, and in some, but by no means always, superior, its moral and spiritual needs are the same. And Plato will always insist that he is not only telling us about metaphysics and the nature of our souls, and that it's art of virtue, but more immediately about how to become a philosopher, how to engage in the art by which we become less subhuman than we we would otherwise be. Of course, he knows that there can be corrupt para-philosophers. He calls them sophists, thus giving the term a bad name. And he knows that mental activity, pursued recklessly by the half-educated, can be a very dangerous business. <clears throat> Elizabeth Anscombe told me once that her daughter threatened to write a biography under the title "Thinking Damages the Mind." let quote. But if we heed Plato's warnings and follow his advice, we too can learn, as many through the ages have learned, at least to begin to live philosophically. So there's no better way to start learning how to do philosophy than by reading a Platonic dialogue. And the next step is to read it or another a second time. Dante hailed Aristotle as the master of those who know, Il maestro color Casano. It might look like a cheap shot, probably taking advantage of ambiguities in the word know, but I myself would rather think of Plato as the master of those who want to understand. Thank you for your attention.